Um, This morning's readings are from Job 4, 1 and 6 and 11, Job 8, 1 to 7, and Job 11, 1 to 8. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, going on to verse 6, Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where was the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And now to Job 8, 1 to 7. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Going on to Job 11, 1 to 8. Then Zophar, the Namatite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in my God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in his in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you uh, for that reading, Janice. Uh, Folks, you're going to have to have nimble fingers this morning because we're going to bounce between those three chapters. Before we jump in, uh, just a few things. It's really good to be with you in the flesh. I can't tell you how unfriendly that camera lens is. Never laughs at any of our corny jokes. Totally unmoved by our most passionate pleas. Uh, So it's really, really good to, to see your friendly faces. And for those of you Behind the unfriendly lens, uh, we are still thrilled that you are with us, and uh, we'd love for you to join us here on a Sunday morning as soon as possible. Not sooner, but as soon as possible, uh, we'd love for you to be with us on a Sunday morning. Friends, uh, we as a church staff are very aware just at the moment of us as a church family being and going through an extraordinary, an extraordinary season of suffering and difficulty. And I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm talking about um, 
particular hardships, really heavy burdens that our people are having to carry at the moment. Obviously, it's all exacerbated by COVID, but there are particular things uh, for many of us in the church family. And so um, I'm just going to ask before we jump into God's word that you bow your heads and pray with me in that light. Father, as always, we desperately need you. There isn't a Sunday when we gather when we don't desperately need you. But perhaps right at the moment, Lord, we are just acutely aware of that need. Uh, Lord, it's, it seems to be a season of deep, deep sadness and pain and anxiety and conflict and struggle for so many of us in the family. And so, Father, in, in a special way, won't you bind up the brokenhearted this morning? We are so incredibly grateful for what we read in your word. We read a bruised reed, I will not break. We thank you for your gentleness, your kindness to us. And we pray that you will come to us this morning and comfort the sad and the lonely. We pray that you will bring strength for the weak. We pray that you will grant wisdom to the confused and the conflicted. And Father, will you bring love and grace to us all? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's Saturday morning and uh, you've got to make that trip, that dreaded trip to the city dump. And as you're there unloading, you can't help but see a middle-aged man sitting in the filth. Now, you've, you live in Josie, you've seen beggars before, but somehow... This man is different. He's all alone. He's wearing expensive clothes, uh, but those clothes are, are torn to shreds. He has open wounds that are weeping with pus. He sits in silence, except for the occasional wail or scream. And so you have to ask the foreman. You turn to the foreman, you ask him, and the story goes that this man once had it all. Widely respected large happy family, massively successful in business. He had it all, but he lost it all. He's bankrupt. His children died in a freak building accident. And then his health crashed. It seems like he's put himself here on the city dump to die and decompose with the rest of the city's refuse. You think out loud, I I mean, I wonder what happened to this man. What was the turning point? The foreman jumps in. My guess is tender fraud. And he wanders off to carry on with his business. That's where we left Job last time. On the city dump with nothing but a broken piece of pottery to scrape his wounds. Some friends came to comfort him. But when they saw him in that state, they actually treated him like a dead man. They threw dust on their heads. They tore their clothes. They sat on the ground for seven days. That was the ritual for mourning. That's how you mourn the dead. So when they arrived, they saw Job. They treated him as if he was dead already. And it's not as though Job would have objected. Because the first time he speaks, you remember last week, chapter 3, he only speaks to curse the day he was born. Something he said provoked his friends. And now they finally begin to speak. 
and you can't shut them up for 20 chapters. So let's, let's have a look at the kind of things they, they say. Start in Job 4, chapter 7. Eliphaz says to Job, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lion is broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Bildad says, if you turn to Job chapter 8, verse 3, Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. And then Zophar says, Chapter 11, verse 5. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? I don't know about you, but when you reflect on those words, they sound basically right to me. What are they saying? They're saying God is just, God is powerful, God is wise, and people get what they deserve. Any part of that we wouldn't agree with? I don't think so. So let's have a look at the details. Go back to Job 4. Sorry, we're going to dance this morning, so just stay with me. Uh, back to Job 4, we go back to Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the most senior of the counselors, and he leads this conversation with Job. What is the heart of his message? Have a look at verse 8. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In this life, Job, you reap what you sow. If that's true, then if you are reaping suffering, it's because you sowed sin. You see, Job, the innocent never perish, verse 7. It's only the guilty who suffer. The lion, which was a great symbol of evil in that culture, the lion has his teeth broken. Why? Well, because, verse 9, he's being punished by God. Job, if you are suffering... You are being disciplined by God. And if you are being disciplined by God, it is because you sinned. That's how things are in this universe. Later in his speech, Eliphaz tells Job in so many words. You don't need to turn there, but 5 verse 17, he says, Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Job, if you are reaping the pain of the Lord's discipline, it is because you must have sowed in sin. That simple. That is the heart of his message for Job. Bildad brings basically the same message, but he brings it with a little more force. So turn to Job chapter 8 now, and let's have a look at verse 4. 
Just let these words land and consider Job and let these words land. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Remember what happened to Job's children? But, verse 6, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful habitation. Don't you see, Job, your dead children are proof of their sin. They sowed sin, they reaped death. It's the same for you. And to put it the other way around, Job, if you sow purity, you will reap blessing. You will enjoy even more blessing than you ever had before. That's more or less what Eliphaz said. But there's one important difference. Where God was present to discipline Job, now he takes a step back. And Job is at the mercy of the moral order that God has put in place. The moral order functions a bit like the natural order, like, uh, like natural laws, like gravity. A heavy stone will not be easily moved. And in fact, that's exactly the example, chapter 18, verse 4, that Bildad uses. He says to Job, You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Shall the rock be removed out of its place? You see, Job, you may not like it, but there is a moral order that God has set in the universe. You reap what you sow. Anything else would be like a rock defying gravity. For Bildad, God has taken a step back. And Job gets what he deserves, but he gets it from the system. Job, you reap what you sow, and your dead children are proof of it. Zophar has the same basic message, but once again he brings it with a little more force. So chapter 11, verse 6. Know then, Job, that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. He exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You've lost your livelihood, your colleagues, your servants, your family, your health. But don't complain, Job, because you're not even getting what you deserve. You should be reaping what you sow, and you haven't even pulled in the full harvest. You deserve more. Same basic message, with a little more force, and once again, one important difference. God takes another step back. For Eliphaz, God was present in discipline. For Bildad, God stepped behind the counter, so to speak, behind the moral order, behind the system. For Zophar, God has fallen back completely into a fog of mystery. Chapter 11, verse 7. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? It is deeper than Sheol. What can you know? You can't know, Job. But he knows you, verse 11. For he knows worthless men. He sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? Job, a man reaps what he sows. You are suffering because of your sin. If it seems unfair, well, listen here, it should be worse. So don't ask why. Just accept it. That's the message Job's friends, friends bring him again and again and again. 
in this life, you get what you deserve. Now let me ask you, what do you think of that message? I think we have to start by saying it's basically right. It's actually the plain teaching of the Bible itself. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28. Remember? Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Proverbs 22 verse 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, so also will he reap. In fact, most of the wisdom literature in the Bible is a variation on this basic theme. God has placed a moral order in the universe. You reap what you sow. That's the Bible's teaching. It's also the common sense wisdom of the foreman at the city dump. This happened because this guy cheated on his wife or he cooked the books or he dodged his taxes or he abandoned his parents or he was cruel to the poor or he's got a little gambling problem. Listen, one way or another, he's getting what he deserves. They always do. They always do. And there's a part of us that believes that, don't we? In fact, there's actually a part of us that wants that. We desperately want that. So much so that people sometimes use it against us, this desire for people to reap what they sow. People will use it against us. When the pastor asks you to get out your credit card and to sow a seed, what is he appealing to? You reap what you sow. When your friend says the reason you can't have a baby is that you don't have enough faith, what truth is she applying? You reap what you sow. When some Puritan communities forced an adulterous wife to wear a scarlet letter A around her neck, wouldn't the perfect subtitle have been, you reap what you sow? On more than one occasion, I've heard white Christians say that they will never give to a white beggar standing at the robot. Why? Well, if he couldn't make it during apartheid, with all of those privileges, then he must be in this mess because he's either lazy or incompetent or dishonest or a drunk or a thief. He's getting what he deserves. We all of us, in one way or another, think this way. I remember sitting with someone as they were trying to process the results of their cancer test and this person telling me through tears, I think the Lord is punishing me. You reap what you sow, friends. It's in the Bible. It's in our everyday experience. It's how we think. But then... This is what we read in Job chapter 42, verse 7. Don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
At the end of the debate, the Lord himself adjudicates. And he, decide, he decides in favor of Job. Job is right. His friends are just plain wrong. But how can that be? I mean, what do we do with all our experiences, all our observations of people reaping what they sow? More importantly, what do we do with the Bible when it says repeatedly and in a number of different ways, you reap what you sow? This is a difficult and dangerous thing. Job's friends are not coming to him with a bald-faced lie. They are coming with a lie beautifully wrapped up in the truth. It's a one-sided truth, and one-sided truths always make the most dangerous lies. All the great heresies are just orthodoxy with a little plus or a little minus. And this is what the friends offer Job. It is absolutely true that more than half of the wisdom literature and more than half of our lived experience is you reap what you sow. The Psalms and the Proverbs are full of it. Our Monday to Sunday is full of it. But that's not the whole story. Because we read the Psalms and the Proverbs in the Bible. And in that same Bible, we also read books like Ecclesiastes and Job. While the wisdom of the Proverbs is the rule, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and Job is the exception. God stitched moral order into the fabric of this world. And that means we reap what we sow. But because sin entered into the world and with sin moral chaos, we don't reap what we sow all the time. Some of the time, people will reap what they sow. The rest of the time, the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer. Our world is a mixed reality. It gives me such great confidence that the Bible presents that mixed reality just as it is, in no uncertain terms. But Job's friends present you reap what you sow as an iron law of moral physics that applies always and everywhere and to everyone in every situation. And so their sin is a sin of omission. They are right in what they affirm. They are wrong in what they deny or what they omit. And because all truth and error relates back to God ultimately, their error is in the first place theological. They make at least three serious errors relating to who God is and how he governs this universe. So they misunderstand, ignore, distort God's plan, God's person, and God's grace. God's plan, God's person, God's grace. Three areas of major error in the thinking of Job's friends and in our thinking a lot of the time. First error, God's plan. The friends seem to have no sense whatsoever that God is working things out in history. That God has a plan, that he is moving history towards a climax. And that there will come a day when all of us will reap what we have sown 
forever. But that day has not yet come. It's not yet come. The friends insist on God's perfect justice now. They ignore God's plan, and they want to bring God's perfect justice from the future into the present. And they insist then that you can read God's perfect justice off of your circumstances. Do you see how dangerous this error is? So when they look at Job, the only conclusion they can draw is, what a terrible, awful, miserable sinner. And when they look at themselves, at each other, look at themselves in the mirror, look at their circumstances, the only conclusion they can draw is, what righteous men? The problem with this kind of worldly wisdom, this kind of religion, is openly exposed when calamity strikes. When calamity struck Job, he refused to curse God. How could he refuse to curse God? Because he refused to accept you reap what you sow as the only way to understand his predicament. He refused to draw a line from his circumstances to his sin. But if you are religious, like his friends... The only, and the only category you have is you reap what you sow, then when calamity strikes, you will either be crushed by the unbearable shame of some unknown sin, or you will be so outraged that God has somehow missed your righteousness that you will curse him. In your anger, you will curse him. You will walk away from him. And all that because you don't understand God's plan, God's timeline. You don't understand that the age of perfect justice has not yet arrived. That our age, the age in which we live, is a mixed reality. And thank God that none of us truly gets what he deserves or she deserves. We'll say more about that in a moment. That's the first error. Ignoring, misunderstanding, willfully distorting God's plan. Second error, God's person. And this for me is the heart of the problem. This is the half-truth that sells the lie. This is the reason the Lord says to Job's friends, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. It's all about who God is. You see, the friends were preaching the conventional theology, the conventional wisdom of their day. In that ancient Near Eastern culture, you gave to the gods, the gods gave back to you. It's tit-for-tat. It's a sort of a mutual back-scratching exercise. It's you reap what you sow. Job's friends are all giving him versions of that pop wisdom, that pop theology. And if we're honest, very little has changed. For Eliphaz, God only comes near to a human being in discipline. As an enforcer of, you reap what you sow. For Eliphaz, God is a school principal. For Bildad, God takes a step back. God only deals with us via the system. So for Bildad, God is a kind of a back office bureaucrat. You know the kind? The kind who makes all sorts of decisions about your life, but is locked away in some office, in some labyrinth that you will never ever see. For Zophar, God takes another step back, this time into complete obscurity. So for, for Zophar, God is like, he's like a hacker on the dark web. His decisions will perf- affect you profoundly, but 
don't think for one second you can know who he is, how he goes about his business, what he's doing. Just accept it. Just accept it. You see, these men say that God is powerful, that he's just, that he's wise. And they're right. They are right. He is. But they never say that he's loving. They say that he's far off and other and transcendent, and he is. But they never ever say that he comes near, that he comes close. And this, my friends, is the very seductive, very destructive lie they are peddling. Because if Job believes them, all he can do is die from a sense of shame, shame over some unhidden sin, some hidden sin, some sin he knows nothing about, or curse God in his anger and die. Those are his only options. And by the end of the book, the God, the true God, proves himself all-powerful, just and wise, but he also comes close to Job in love. And by the end of the Bible, Jesus Christ proves himself to be the power, the justice, the wisdom of God. But he is also, perhaps supremely, God's love in the flesh for us, for you and for me. And that leads us into the third error, God's grace. Because Job's friends distorted God's character, I don't think they would have been able to recognize the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think they would have missed it entirely. They saw Job, and they just flat out rejected the idea of a righteous sufferer. The idea of grace wouldn't even occur to them. The idea of God's unmerited favor would have been a stench to them. It would have been a foul smell. Why? Because you reap what you sow. They wanted God's justice. They wanted it now. They wanted it in perfect fullness. They did not know what they wanted. They didn't know what they were asking for. If they did, they might have wanted it for Job, but they certainly would not have wanted it for themselves. No one can ever truly, truly want to reap what he or she has sown. You do not want that universal moral law applied to you. What you should want, what we all desperately need, is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, the conventional wisdom is turned on its head. And that's why he's such a stench to our world. He's such a scandal. The conventional wisdom, the wisdom of Job's friends, the wisdom of our age says, salvation is for the righteous and suffering for the unrighteous. Right? But the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ says suffering is for the righteous and salvation for the unrighteous. If Job's friends had been on Calvary that day, they would have seen that miserable peasant mocked, beaten, stripped, naked, utterly humiliated, and they would have said to each other, here hangs the worst of all sinners. But the criminal next to him saw the truth. He saw the truth. He said, don't you understand? 
We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. See, God knows that none of us can reap what we sow and live. Not one of us. The only way we can live is by putting our trust in him. And that's exactly what Job does. And that's why Job is vindicated in and through his suffering. He puts his trust in the God who would one day send another righteous sufferer to reap what we have sown so that we might reap what he has sown. This is the heart of God's wisdom. This is the climax of the plan, the great exchange, Jesus for us. The Apostle Peter wanted to encourage a suffering community, and so he wrote these words, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Job's friends could never write those words. Never. There's just no place for a righteous sufferer in their system. There is no place for the grace of God. For them, our sin is like one giant stone fixed in place by the moral law of gravity. But on Easter morning, in Jesus, that stone was rolled away. God's plan, God's person, God's grace, three areas of very serious error. Three errors that make God extremely angry. His anger burns against Job's friends. And yet, he's recorded them at great length. We're talking about dozens of chapters of just pure error. Why make an eternal record of all this error? I think it's obvious once we think about it. He wants to teach us something. And he's teaching us profoundly practical things, especially in this day and age. So just in closing, let me list a few. Three lessons. They're lessons for, or three areas of lesson. They're lessons for the Christian, just any Christian. They're lessons for the counseling Christian. And they're lessons for the suffering Christian. So lessons for all of us as Christians. First of all, we're in a spiritual war. If you want to know more about that, go and listen to last week's sermon. Martin dealt with it at length. We are in a spiritual war. So many brands of Christianity are the how-to of effective sowing to maximize what you reap, to maximize the harvest, to maximize your pleasure in this life, if we put it plainly. But do you see that that is absolutely hopeless in a time of war? If I'm going into war and all you give me are some tips on how to succeed in the kitchen or in the boardroom or in the bedroom, do you see that you're setting me up to die? Listen to the words of Jesus. Simon, Simon, that's Peter, his apostle. Pay attention, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you all. That's first the apostles, then all of us. To sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. 
Jesus doesn't say, Satan demanded to have you, but I prayed that you would keep the house and the car. No, it's like Job. Satan can take anything he wants, but the one thing he cannot have is Simon's faith, his soul. That is the victory Christ has won. With the greatest respect in the world to the bumper stickers and the license plates, the blood of Jesus does not protect your Range Rover. It protects your soul. Your soul, your soul belongs to God. Your faith belongs to God. We need to know that we are in a battle, my friends. We also need to know, and we need to know this, and be assured of this, that, that the victory is secure in Christ. We are in a spiritual war. We have a real enemy, but he has overcome. Leads us to the second lesson for us as Christians. We are going to suffer. We have to expect to suffer. We don't enjoy suffering. We don't go looking for it. It's not like this life is one grim litany of suffering. But we are going to suffer. And if you don't expect it, then you haven't read your Bible. And you are going to be utterly disillusioned with the Christian faith. You are going to walk away. It's why prosperity teaching is so very damaging. When I was still in the secular world, I had a, I had a work colleague who was taught this. If you, if you sow enough faith, then you will reap a comfortable, happy life, effectively. And then he was in a very, very serious car accident. And as I was talking to him, it, it surfaced that not only was this man broken phys physically, but he was utterly shattered spiritually. And that for him was the deeper pain. Why? Why was he in this state? Well, because he could only understand his suffering in one of two ways. One, I deserve this because I didn't have enough faith. Or two, the God in whom I put my faith doesn't have the power to protect me or doesn't love me enough to do it. My friends, this teaching is poisonous. We have to believe the Bible instead and anticipate that sometimes we will suffer for things we don't understand and for reasons we don't deserve. That's lessons for all of us. Lessons for the counseling Christian, which again is all of us in one context or another. The counseling Christian, that's all of us. First lesson, don't presume to know or judge the reasons for a person's suffering. I mean, sometimes it is obvious. Here's a man who left his wife and now he's feeling lonely. It's fairly straightforward cause and effect. But often, it really isn't that obvious. And we have to err on the side of not presuming we have an answer to the question why. We have to err on that side. And that brings us to our second lesson for the counseling Christian. When you approach someone in their suffering, you are entering onto sacred ground. This is a person who is utterly raw, totally naked and exposed. It is sacred, sacred ground. What they need in the first place 
is just to know they're not alone. That's it. They just need your presence. They don't at that point need your systematic theology. They just need you to be there. So a period of silent solidarity is completely appropriate. But we don't want to be like Job's friends. We don't want to treat them as if they are already dead. And so at some point, we will have to speak a word of comfort. At that point, which you need to discern with the help of the Holy Spirit and great wisdom, which none of us have, so you have to do this prayerfully, at that point, you mustn't bring answers you don't have. Resolve to speak nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Why? Well, because that is what any of us need in any situation. Because the cross assures us and assures the sufferer of God's love. The cross assures the sufferer of God's love. And the cross assures them that they do not suffer alone. That God himself has suffered. And he is with them in solidarity. Jesus knows their pain. And that leads us finally into two lessons for the Christian sufferer, which are really just the inverse of the lessons for the Christian counselor. But I need to speak them to you directly if you are here this morning as someone who is going through suffering, and I know there are many of us. Two lessons. You are much loved, and you are not alone. You are much loved. Please, I am pleading with you, please, do not read God's love for you off of your material circumstances. That is a lie. I'm going to say it from the pits of hell. And it smells of? It smells of smoke. That is what Satan wanted Job to do. To look at his miserable life, to conclude there's no evidence of God's love here, and then to curse God and die. Job's friends were trying to peddle him the same lie turns out. Jesus had a friend who tried to sell him the same lie. Sell him the lie that righteous men don't suffer. You remember that friend? What did he say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Your friends might try and sell you the very same lie. Don't buy it. Not for one second. If you want a true measure of God's love for you, there's only one place to look. The cross of Christ. Go there. Go there every day. Go there with your most bitter tears. And look at his bitter tears. Look at the blood dripping from his brow. And remind yourself, he did all of this for me. That is the measure of God's love for you. Nothing else. The same cross tells you, you are not alone. You are not alone. Now, we don't know the depths of each other's suffering. You know, we, we have empathy, but we don't know the depths of each other's suffering. One thing I know for sure is that in your suffering, you will never, ever be God-forsaken. God will not leave you. Why can I say that with such conviction? Well, because Jesus drank that cup for you. 
He drank the cup of God-forsakenness. And he drank it down to the dregs. And he drank it for us. You are not alone. If anyone knows, if anyone understands, he does. And he's with you. You are not alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that you have good plans and purposes, purposes to bless us beyond our wildest imaginings. And even though we don't always understand, we know that we can trust you because you love us. Thank you that you are not far away, but that you have come close to us in the person of Jesus. We thank you that we don't have to reap what we have sown. We reap what he has sown. Thank you for your grace. Help us to trust him in the chaos and the pain of this life. And help us to offer him to others. Help us to be true friends and true counselors and not to offer answers, but to offer the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's only in his precious name that we pray. Amen.